For those of you who've been here, you've kind of been tracking with this, but um, we've been in a series called Demanding, and the idea being that um, God has called us to some things in life, and the Scriptures lay out for us some pretty, some pretty plain truths. And, um, and we're going to be continuing in that. Right now we're in a kind of a portion of these demands that have to do with marriage and family and um, some very personal things, some things within our life uh, that can be sometimes hard to talk about and painful to talk about, painful to, to bring up and, and think through. Um, I really love the way the worship went this morning, and Rob and I were laughing a little bit with a song like In the Secret. There's different kinds of oldies, right? There's oldies like 1600s oldies, which we do some of those. We pull out some hymns and we like to sing those. There's also oldies like mid-90s or early 90s oldies, and there's just a different feel to that. And we thought, well, the message of that song is really exactly what we wanted to do. Let's not be prejudiced against the mid-90s. So we were boldly uh, just moving forward with that, and we sang that song. And some of the lyrics of what we just sang set up for us um, where we're going. And that is that I want to start this morning by saying this. Um, many of you have, uh, have dealt with and struggled with some things in life. Not many, with all of, but, but all of us, really. Of decisions we've made in life that we're not proud of, that we're not happy about. Circumstances in life that have happened to us, that we had no decision in the matter whatsoever. As we start this morning, let me just say this. Um, as we move forward, I am really praying, I'm asking God that as we open His Word, as we look to His, um, His instructions for us this morning, um, that you would have hearts and ears and minds to hear what God would say. Uh, you may get mad at me for periods of time, maybe long periods of time, and I'd be okay with that. Um, you may bristle at what you hear initially and just say, man, I'm just going to go there. What I'm asking is this, hear, hear me out and hear the rest of this morning out uh, hopefully and prayerfully, that you'd hear from God. Um, and, and don't just shut down at hearing a topic that you go, that's too painful, I'm going to not listen to that. Or I've heard this before from a preacher, and this is the way this goes. Um, and so that would just, just be kind of my, my prayer as we, as we walk forward. Agreed? All right. And if you just don't want to agree, you can just shut down anyways, I'll never know. Uh, so, with that, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, how many of you like the beach? Anyone like the beach in here? Yeah. I, I really like the beach. I'm going to bring up this first slide. Phil, can you get me the first slide? There you go. Um, how many of you have been, not necessarily to this beach, but a beach kind of like this? Like one of those really exotic beaches that people take pictures of. Raise your hand if you've been to a beach like this before, okay? And you just have looked around and you thought, man, we should be taking you know, pictures of this for postcards and making some money here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but you've, you've seen beaches like this, and um, our beaches don't look quite like that, but the beach is a blast. It's a fun place to go to. Um, ever try to dig a hole in, in the sand at the beach? Ever, ever try that? Okay. Here's how this goes. Okay. I, I grew up going to the beach all the time. And so you start, you're like, let's dig a hole in China. You're like, cool. So you and your brother or you and your friend start digging, right? What immediately starts to happen? Yeah, it starts caving back in, right? So you're like, well, I'll just go faster. You know, and so you work a little harder with it. Um, and, then, uh, and, and then you have kids, and you're a parent, and you're still digging holes at the beach, right? And you're still kind of frustrated with this process. Um, you don't want to bring a shovel to the beach. There's those guys, the same guys that bring like the doo-doo-doo-doo. You know, it's just weird to bring large tools to the beach. So you're sitting there, you're not, you're not really well equipped. You're using a little plastic thing, you know. And the faster you go sometimes, the more it seems like stuff's kicking in. Now, just answer me this. As you're digging your hole, you're starting to get a little bit of progress here, um, what are, what are some of the outside factors that can come and frustrate your plans to dig a sweet hole that people walking by are like, now that's a beach hole. 
I mean, like, how, what are some of the factors that can come and kind of frustrate your plans? Just call them out. Let me hear some. Water. Water. Okay, so let's just track with me for a second. Pretend that God asked us, instead of to build a, a healthy marriage culture or, or, or live in a healthy marriage, let's say that he asked us to dig a hole at the beach, and that's what that represents, okay? Here's what happens sometimes. You start to dig your hole, and what happens is the tide comes up, right? So it looks all dry right here, and you're good, but it takes a long time to dig, for, to, to dig a hole because the sand keeps falling in, and pretty soon the water starts coming in, road wave comes in, and you're just like, man! You know, I, I should have known this. So location can be really huge. What are other factors that frustrate your plan to dig a hole at the beach? Other kids, yes. Namely the ones helping you, right? <laughs> Those ones often are, are doing that. You know, they come up with their knees and they're like, you know, almost falling in. And, and then people want to try out the hole to measure it, you know. And they're like, oh, it's up to my knee. And they're knocking more sand in. So that, that, that causes problems. Don't read too much into this. But kids can frustrate marriage. But uh, that's not where I'm going this morning. What else? What else? Time. How does time hurt it? Who said time? Talk to me, Les. Okay, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, or even losing interest. Maybe the, the, the period of time it takes to build a sweet hole that is admired by all, you're like, I'm just not committed to this thing. It's too hard. Okay, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Time. What else? Your tools break. Yeah, the little plastic... The little plastic tool that you go, bing, you know, it breaks and you're like, you know, give me a spoon, you know, whatever. So, yeah, what else? Anything else? Remember that bully that like kicks sand in the, in the face of the little wimpy kid in that cartoon strip? And then the wimpy kid goes and gets really ripped. I think he goes and beats up the guy that kicks sand in his face. There's bullies, right? Bullies in my family uh, came in the form of older brothers who came up and they're like, hey, you know, and they kind of scuffled up. And not sand in my hole as I'm, as I'm trying to, 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 to dig it out. So all these different factors can kind, of, can kind of come in and start to erode your sweet hole that you're trying to, to build at the beach. Now let me just say this. Building a marriage culture is what God has asked us to do. And he's given us tools to do it. And yet, um, it's a lot like that, that digging of a hole. Just persevering in that exercise can be really, really toilsome, can it? To just keep going and go, what's the point? And we can draw all kinds of comparisons here to the marriage journey, if you think about it. And um, as you go and look, let's say that this brochure is, uh, some of you have had vacations like this, where they show you this in the brochure, but they don't show you the rest of it, right? Um, what you can't see on the brochure is the little gnats that are, that are hovering like a half inch over the sand, all over the beach, you know, they don't show you that part. Um, but in, in building a healthy marriage culture, and that's what we kind of started on two weeks ago and talked about for a couple of weeks is what does that look like? Um, the, the opposite of, of, a, of a thriving marriage culture um, where this erodes looks, looks something like this, right? And they don't really show you this part of marriage even going in. Most people go into marriage, they have expectations. They're like, here's how my marriage is going to be. And they paint the previous slide, Right? And they paint it from a distance because they've never been there before. And they just dream about how it's going to be. It's lover's bliss. And they just, they can't wait to get there. And, um, and sometimes this is what ends up happening. Now let me just say this, that the opposite of a, of a thriving marriage culture. By, by the way, the side benefits. These are just kind of the side benefits that God has offered to us. In a, in a, not just your family that has a thriving marriage, but think of your family of families. 
Okay, so that would be kind of what's gathered here. What if healthy churches just just had this this marriage culture they'd been working towards and, and building? Here are just some side benefits. Health. There are, there are educational benefits to a healthy marriage, right? Because there's there's room and energy to to, to pour into the next generation in a in a godly way. There is a flourishing of spouses and childrens and communities and societies. This begins to, to permeate. As we talked about last week, when that begins to erode and shut down, so does society. It follows that every single time. Where this erodes, so, do does, uh, so, so too does individual and community health. Um, here's, here's one of the big indicators. And, and um, Man, where's my sweet prop? There it is. Um, Here's, here is, here's one of the, the, the huge indicators of this, okay? I want you just to think about, now we didn't have time to really expand on this a, a ton, but um, anytime you bring out bills, that always gets people's attention. That's, that's always a good thing. Um, we didn't develop this a ton, but if, if you were to go back 50 years in America, and some of you were there, um, and so you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, um, but, but it was a different place. And, um, and there, were, there were different sets of values that were set up, and there were different sets of ideas and expectations that were here. Now, I'm not going to try and just get all negative with you on some stats, but let me throw some things out because they are, they are quite telling. Um, if, if you were to take the, the number of out-of-wedlock births about 50 years ago, here is the percentage that that, that would represent, okay? You would be looking at, for every single child that's out there, out of 100 kids, right here, five of them would have been born in a, in a non, what we would say, just traditional family. Okay? Mom, dad, married, being born. Okay? 5%. Okay? This is less than 50 years ago. Here we are today, and let me just show you the, the percentage. That's just going to be on, on one side. So as we, as we start looking today... Um, Here's what's, here's what's going on. And this, this by the way, isn't, isn't the only indicator. Okay? Um, but this is, this is just one indicator. You could take number of people who live together outside of marriage and how that's going. You could take the absolutely astronomical divorce rate and you could just see how that's kind of going. As you start to look at this and you think, well, who really pays the most when you have kids that are born out of wedlock? Who is it? Well, I'll tell you who it is. It is the poorest and the most vulnerable in our society. Okay? They're the ones who end up with a really, really, really hefty price tag on this. Today, the stats tell us that it's somewhere above 40% of children that are born out of mom and dad who have at least in word and possibly in covenant committed to living their lives together. A hundred kids that you'll see this week, potentially 40 of them, will be growing up in a home outside of a committed marital relationship. And while there are issues and while there are problems in other segments of society, as you look at this, here are some of the here are some of the price tags that happen, especially in poor neighborhoods. Delinquency, drug abuse, crime, Incarceration, hopelessness, despair. And if we think that doesn't affect us somehow because we don't see it or don't live in it, live in it on a week-to-week basis, we're wrong. That affects our culture. That affects our society. 
When the church stops being the church, this gets rampant and out of control. And so, what does God call us to do in this kind of a setting? What does God call us to be in these kinds of places? We started a couple weeks ago with being fruitful and multiply because here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take, instead of kind of all this negative and all the stuff you hear that kind of depresses and is down on marriage and all of this, what I wanted to do is I wanted to hold out to you what we call holy matrimony. I wanted to hold out to you, here is God's gift to you. It's called marriage. And He said that He blessed the people He made and told them, be fruitful and multiply. That means that marriage is a gift and a blessing. Children are a reward from God. Not an inconvenience. Not a result of unsafe sex. They're a gift from Him. And what, what, what's bizarre is me even saying those words starts to sound a little bit weird to our 2010 ears because we don't hear that message very often. So we wanted to start out with, with what is, what is and, and what was supposed to be there. Now, here's where we're going to kind of continue today, and that is with this thought, that, um, that God, created, God created all of you, everyone here, right? But God also created all of you, like your whole body and all that you are. And that's something else that I think are, are, can, can just get sort of confusing. Um, I grew up in the church uh, basically every other week, and some of you kind of know my story with that. But I kind of got, um, I kind of got raised a little bit on, on Sunday morning cartoons one week, and I got raised in the church on the other week. And so I got to kind of see this juxtaposed a little bit um, and, and got to see a little bit of what was going on. But sometimes in the church, this gets really, really goofy. Um, people already are just a little uncomfortable talking about um, in the church. And so I'll just say it's sex for those of you who are listening on audio. Um, and so they just go, oh, is that supposed to be said in church? And there's so many times in youth group where, you know, we're, we're at a movie or, or, or we're out somewhere and, and the, 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 the comment is made, you know, by some kid, oh, we better turn this song off because there's a pastor in the car. Um, okay, so... God can't hear it when the pastor's not there. Um, it's, it's a shock to God that these bands are around if I'm not here. I don't know the bands exist. I mean, what, where's, the line, where's the logic in this? It, it really gets really kind of goofy and wacky. But I think that the church, and, and I'm part of church leadership, so I'll take some ownership of this. I think that the, the, that the church kind of contributes to this. Okay? I don't know if, you've tra- if, if, if you can track with this, but here's something that I sort of heard, and maybe some of you have heard it. Um, there, there got to be this vibe from church sometimes that says this, that sex is bad and dirty and nasty and you should save it for the one that you love. <laughs> and so you're a kid and you're going, okay, so I should save this just for that special someone. And it just got really kind of confusing. Um, parents don't help with this. Sometimes your, your family situation, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, some of you had dismal uh, education about these sort of things at home. And all kinds of training in other areas that matter far less. And you, and you just think back and you go, Mom, Dad, why didn't you help me out a little bit in this area? I sure wish I would have known about this a little bit. I sure could have used it from your mouth instead of from, you know, Joey in the locker room who didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And so we kind of march forward in some of these things and it's a struggle. Hebrews 13.4 says this, says that the marriage bed is honored and to be kept pure. 
Let me just put this stamp out there from God. You can't keep something pure that isn't already pure. The language is really, is, is really clear here. The marriage bed is pure. And it's to be kept that way. It's to be guarded that way. It's not just going to happen by two sinful people getting married and going on a honeymoon to a beach that looks really sweet in the pictures. It won't just end up that way. And if I could, I'd have a hearty amen from anyone who's been married for more than about two days. Because we get this. We understand this. So where's this kind of disconnect that goes on with things? Let me just throw this out to you. I think some people in this room may, may have enrolled in a school of thought they've never even heard of before. There's this thing called Gnosticism. If you want to impress people tomorrow, just throw out the word not. Oh, those Gnostics, man, they really messed us up, huh? People are like, what? Um, and here's what, here's what Gnostics were about, okay? They basically, there's kind of different varieties of this, but their basic element was this, that anything spirit is really, really good and pure. And anything that's matter or body is inherently evil. And so they, so they basically kind of separated these two things out. And here's the thing. I think there's kind of a neo-Gnostic, not neo-Nazi, neo-Gnostic mo- movement that's kind of crept into our thinking a little bit. Now, Gnosticism is a heresy. It's a godless way of thinking. It's absolutely and unequivocally not true. Some of the New Testament writers wrote their books in response to a Gnostic way of thinking that had kind of permeated culture of that day. Remember this one? And the Word, talking about Jesus Christ, and the Word became flesh. Those words are huge in our New Testament. And the Word became flesh kind of shatters this idea that somehow Spirit is good, And what we do with our bodies and matter, this is all evil anyways. It's all going to burn. And so it doesn't really matter. Let me just throw this out to you. I think some of us have a little bit of a a different idea about Jesus than than, than is biblical. I wonder if your Jesus can fit into some of these uh, realms that I'm about to throw out to you. As you think about Jesus, and as you think about who He was... I wonder if your Jesus that, that comes to your mind um, is, is one who laughed and teased and was playful and got really tired and hungry and frustrated and had dirty toenails. That's, that's, a, that's a fleshly Jesus, right? Now we could go on with that. That's relatively safe. We could go on with that and say, well, how human was Jesus, Right? I mean, there's a certain sense where we start getting really, really uncomfortable with saying, well, surely my God didn't do that. And he didn't, you know, he didn't ever vomit, for sure. I mean, vomit's disgusting. And he would never do that. That's unholy and impure. And we think of these different bodily functions and go, well, surely he didn't do that. I mean, he thought of a way to kind of avoid the bad stuff. So here's, here's what we know from Scripture. He walked this earth fully God and fully human. And he did it without sin. But I think sometimes we kind of help him out a little bit with certain kinds of things. Let me just say this. We, we, we serve this triune God who's all-powerful and sovereign, a son who is fully human, and a spirit that now resides in people that go and permeate all sectors of life by, by the people that he indwells. So God's seen it. He's not separate and he's not removed. Here's what happens if you take God, and by the way, God created us as sensuous beings. 
He created with all these senses and all these different things to enjoy and to be pleasured and, and all of this. And it was created by God and it was said to be good. I wonder if this morning, some of you who wrestle with this could take a break from bashing your body for a moment and feeling shame about your sexuality for a moment and just ask God to, to help you receive the gift that it is to have your body, to have your senses, to even have your struggles. Because you know what? You struggling with some of your appetites and passions means you have a heartbeat and that you're alive. Let me have you look at your bulletin or you could look at the screen for a minute. As you look at each of these pictures, I want you to look at these pictures and realize God could have done it so many different ways, couldn't He have? He could have done it such that we don't enjoy food and we're never tempted to sin with food. But He didn't. He allowed us to have taste buds and the sense of smell and even sight to just look at a plate of food or Marianne's ice cream or whatever's before you and you just go, yes! And what happens with food sometimes? We take a God-given, a God-blessing, a God-gift, and we turn it into sin. Gluttony. Making it an idol. Going and worshiping at the restaurant because we can't wait to have more food. And doesn't that, doesn't that play out really with all of our senses? Here's what happens if you kind of divorce your flesh from your spirit, which is impossible anyways. God's made us holistic and complete, is that it kind of allows for compartmentalization. What that means is this. Monday through Saturday, I can kind of do what I want. As long as on Sunday, I reconnect with God in my spirit. As long as I have a quiet time and kind of connect with Him there, then some of these fleshly things, He knows that I was made in, from dust and all of this, and it kind of excuses that and allows that to, to, to go away. Here's what, here's what the, the rub is, is that the Bible smashes that. The Bible speaks to all these fleshly things that we wrestle with and are gifted with. And it talks about how to deal with these things. There are some very mundane kinds of things, actually. And it goes into great detail, far from being some old, archaic book. Go read these parts of the Old Testament, about the first third or so. You know what you'll discover is that it goes into shocking detail about every nuance of life you could possibly dream up. It's in there. And God's instructing His people, here's how you deal with this. Here's what you do with this. Here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. Here's how I intended this to be used. Here's how it's being used. Here's how it's to be punished. All that kind of thing. Here's how you're to be restored from those things. So all this, all this nuance of life is there. So it kind of begs this question, what am I to do with this body then? God, you've given me this body. You've made it. You've blessed it. What am I supposed to do with it? How many of you have heard that you're to, to put to death the flesh? Ever hear that before? Okay, good. It's in the Bible, so I hope you at least hear it, read it, check it out. It's, it's a good one. Um, but put to, put to death the flesh. Is that true? Yes. Are you to discipline your flesh? Yes. Are you to enjoy your flesh? Yes. It's all in there. And so I think if all we ever hear, and you've heard me say it from here, mortify, crucify the fleshly nature. But I think if we hear only that side, we never hear enjoy the side, we can get back to that goofy thing of we are like, you know, sex is nasty, dirty, and horrible, save for the one you love. And we get these weird mixed messages that God would say, no, that's not at all what I said. So what am I to do with this body? That's kind of where we're going to go from here. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. And that's where we're going to kind of camp out. We're just going to take one chunk of Scripture and look at it this morning. 
while you're turning there, let me just point out to you a couple of highlights from a passage that you're going to, your uh, scripture memory verse for this week is in. And that's in 1 Corinthians 6. And in 1 Corinthians 6, some of these ideas come to the forefront. Our bodies were made, but they were not made for sexual immorality. Our bodies are not our own. Our bodies were bought with a price. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you've heard any of those things, that's absolutely true. And that's scriptural and biblical. That's the passage we're not going to look at. You can look at that some more later on. The problem is when desires, passions, appetites, all of which are good and God created, become infected, become perverted, become sinful. And what happens is those begin to steer the wrong way. What, what I don't want anyone to walk out of here hearing today is we should be less passionate. That God wants us less sensual. He doesn't want that. In fact, what happens is we actually shoot for way down here. And, and by comparison of what God wants us to do, we're passionless. We settle for things way down here when God wants us to be more passionate. God wants us to have greater desire than, than, than we currently have. And because of the fall, we tend to shoot low. Because of the fall, we tend to get deceived into thinking some things that simply are not true. I want you to look at the screen for just a moment. This is kind of a, an artist's interpretation of what the, the temple of God in the Old Testament might have looked like. Not getting hung up on the specifics of this. Maybe you were raised in a church that had this on, on bulletin form or on, on poster form. I used to look at that and just think about that sometimes. And it struck me as I'm, as I'm reading through the Old Testament, and there's parts of the Old Testament that you read and you just go, man, God, why did you choose to include this for all of time? I mean, these exact specifications of the temple. And what begins to dawn on me is that, you know what? The temple of God, the, the, the dwelling place of God must be pretty important. And the worship of God and how we go about it is actually defined by God for Himself, not by us and, and what we kind of want to, to, to come up with. And so as you pull back and look at a big picture of the Old Testament, what you see is a ton of regulations, specifications that say, this is how temple worship is going to be. Here's how it's going to look. This is what you're going to overlay it with. This is how many days it's going to happen. This is when it's going to happen. I mean, down to these details, God does not leave us in the dark. Just guessing. And at many places in the Scriptures, he says this. He's commanding a prophet or someone to say, tell this to the people from God. And then he closes it with this little line. Tell them to do this or they will surely die. I mean, it's kind of like P.S. You're going to die if you don't do everything right. So just do it. And it's just like this really subtle thing as you're reading, but you're like, whoa, that's pretty heavy. And so what do the people do? They obeyed. And they went off and they, and, they, and they did this. Let me just have you chew on this for that. Now, what is the, the New Testament idea of the, the dwelling place of God? The temple. What is it? Yeah, it's your body. It's you. So as you, as you think about yourself, as you think about this, this temple that God resides in now, and you think about all the specifications that went into Old Testament temple, and now there are some New Testament specifications that go into New Testament temple. Guess what? The same thing applies. Do this or you will surely die. Do this, work within these parameters that I'm giving to you, 
or death is the consequence to it. 1 Corinthians is also the place that talks about sexual sin, saying this, all other sin, there's a, there's a certain, all, all sin is sin in God's eyes, but all other sin is outside the body. But sexual sin is different because it's against its own flesh. It's, it's internal. And there's something to it that's a little bit different. I want to say a, a word of prayer and then we're going we're gonna to dive into 1 Thessalonians 4. God, I just want to say on behalf of us as a people, I, I'm sure there are people in this room who don't believe this, but God, I want to say collectively that we are grateful that you created our sexuality and you alone have the authority to govern how we're to engage in it, how we're to use it, how we're to enjoy it, God. And what is absolutely forbidden and prohibited to be done. Father, my, my prayer this morning is that we would have, um, God, just a, a real sense that these commandments you've given to us, these boundaries that you've given to us aren't prison walls, Lord, but they're, they're guarding walls for this beautiful garden you've created for us to enjoy within the confines of a married relationship. God, the confines, uh, the, the commandments of Scripture aren't there to rob us of joy, but to guard and protect our joy that, that, that you've given to us. And Father, I know in this room, as we've already mentioned, that there are people here who are already uncomfortable, who have already had a nerve stepped on and feel maybe condemned or damned by it. And Lord, let me just reiterate and thank you for this word grace that you've given to us. We think about people in Scripture who have been thrown at your feet in the very midst of sexual sin, caught, busted red-handed. And Father, when we are thrown in that position and we're humble and mournful about our sin, God, this word grace, like water, flows to the lowest places we can imagine. And so God, bring that sense of healing, restoration, and hope that's available in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to finish this phrase for me. What happens in Vegas... How do you people know this stuff? It's atrocious. No, I'm kidding. You're like, how do you know it, Dave? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Why is it supposed to stay in Vegas? Because it's sinful. Thank you, John. Like, let's just say it. You want to cover it up, right? It's not the thing you would do kind of in normal everyday life. You don't want your kids to know about it. You certainly wouldn't want your boss or your spouse knowing about it. It's walking in darkness. There was, a, there was a guy from Leadership Magazine, and, and um, he said this. He said, while, while walking the strip in Vegas, I felt like I was experiencing the Internet in 3D form. Something as innocuous and kid-friendly as M&M World is across the street from Diablo's, where a red-skinned girl with thigh-high leather boots offers you a wicked good time. And then he makes this observation. With web access, every city is now Sin City. Every city is now Sin City. Let me just say this. As a youth pastor, I used to get together with other youth pastors, and we used to be amazed at how in the dark parents were about their kids' online viewing habits, TV viewing habits, and discussion habits. 
If you ever get the chance to be around other teenagers who aren't your own, and you either have teenagers or you have teenagers coming up, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, without being creepy or weird and get like busted, I want you to sidle up near them where you can hear their conversation. And they couldn't give a rip about you because you're not mom, dad, teacher, or boss, so they're just going to talk how they talk. And I want you to just listen what they're talking about. Some of you in this room would be amazed at what our teenagers are talking about and preteens and elementary. Now, here's one of two directions you can go with this. A lot of Christians take this direction. They see this and they're just like, warning, and they just start, they, they enter into uber freakout mode and it's really bizarre and, and it's like, build the wall faster and we just feel like, you know, we need, to, we need to just build this church with some honking walls, get some guard dogs and keep the world at bay. Okay? Um, here's the problem with that is that we are, uh, we are in a context that is not unique to 21st century American life. Let me just read you some of the context of, of 1 Thessalonians, where we're, where we're about to, 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 to read from. This is from a commentary. The idea of men confining sexual intercourse to marriage was foreign to Greek morality. Sound familiar? Of the first century A.D. Men were said to have mistresses for pleasure, harlots for casual sex, and wives for marriage and children. Pagan religions knew nothing of sexual purity and even encouraged cultic prostitution as part of their fertility rites. Now enter God's command for sexual purity. As God had the Israelites come in and purify the land, part of what he was really concerned with was foreign wives and foreign women. You know why? He knew the infectious power of being able to take and say, you know what, I know God's given us all kinds of commands about how to worship Him, where to worship Him, all the details of it. But this over here looks like kind of a cool way to worship too. We'll kind of incorporate that in. We'll kind of do both. Guess what? This is exactly how it goes nowadays. It's smorgasbord worship. As soon as you bump up against something that's like, that's kind of painful and yucky, I don't like that. I'm going to kind of move over in this direction. I like to have my quiet time Watching football. Because God made these athletes to really just excel in sports. And I can really just glorify God seeing how well made they are to do this position in in football. And so that's going to be my quiet time. And then when that gets old, I'm going to worship Him by going to every restaurant in town. And that'll be my quiet time. I mean, again, I'm, I'm a little bit out of bounds, but not really that far. And so, and so, and so we kind of have this, this idea. 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through this. And you're going to have some fill in the blanks. Yippee! Alright, here we go. Verse 1 says this, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Let me stop there for one moment. What follows is, is going to help emphasize this. Living in order to, to, to please God. Not self, not your parents, not that person you're trying to hook up with. None of that. We're going to live in, in order to, to please God. As in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Verse 2, for, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Something that Christians are prone to, and I'm sure we're not alone in it, but I don't really know about others, so I'll just talk about us. We are sometimes prone to want to hear a new truth. We want to hear a, a new truth and a brand new idea and a whole new perspective on how to get along in life. Instead of hearing the same old truth and just actually applying it and walking in it. 
I think many times in my own life, what I need to do is I need to put in practice what I already know. Not go seek out some new author that's hot and he's finally got a corner on God's truth. Every single year, there are new books promoted at Berean Christian Bookstore a couple miles from here. Not bashing Berean, but here's the, here's the rub. What's being promoted in the top 20, top 25 right now in six years, you may never have even heard of that again. Is it truth that will last? If it's biblical, yeah. I would, I would venture to say this. Um... As I, as, I, as I read this morning's passage, you are probably not going to go, wow, never, ever heard that one before. Chances are you will, you will hear this and go, yeah, that sounds consistent with, with what I've been taught or what I've read myself in Scripture. What I, what I want us to do is not be so easily tricked into just kind of checking off like, oh yeah, I already know this. Knowing it and knowing it are two different things. God wants us to walk in this. I would say, I would say with, 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 with verse 2 here, um, uh, or, with, or with verse 1, I would, I would ask and urge that, that you take where you are right now and press forward in it with passion in order to please God. Not in order to attain a higher level of spirituality where you can look down your nose at all the other saps that are out there. But in order to please God. Verse 3 says this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gave you his Holy Spirit. Here's what's going to happen this morning. I'm going to basically give you, um, I'm going to give you, give you three kind of qualifiers uh, of what the sanctified life is. Two reasons that, that Paul gives as to why we're to live this way. And one just kind of key ingredient of how to walk in this, how to obey this. I put in your handout some related commands. Be transformed. Do not be unequally yoked. Do not be deceived by temptation. And be imitators of God, not participants in the deeds of darkness. I could go on and on with that. This is all over the place in Scripture. By its sheer volume, you can tell this is massively important to God that we get this. So let's move on with sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? We don't get to define this. God defines it for us. In the English Bible, most of your English Bibles have three that's that kind of track with us as, as to what these, this sanctified life is. So the first one is this. Um, verse 3 is to avoid sexual immorality. Um, the word here used is, is the word pornea. It's the word we get the word pornography from. And pornea, translated most often sexual immorality, is kind of this broad term that's used. And, and in the Bible, when this, when this term is used, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a catch-all in some ways for all kinds of different sexual practices that lie outside of this, this circle that God has provided, saying, one man, one woman, for all of time. And you could add to that, by God's grace. 
That's his revealed will. And all these other things outside of it, adultery, premarital and extramarital intercourse, pornography, incest, homosexuality, I could go on and on. The Bible goes on and on. It gets very explicit with this. Again, meaning we haven't dreamt this up in Vegas. All we're doing is recapturing something that is as old as dirt. People have just been doing these things and been perverting God's way for a really, really long time. The instruction here is to avoid and abstain from these matters. It, 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 it's, it's different than, let's say, quitting smoking. I had a family member who quit smoking, and I watched, I watched her kind of try to quit smoking for a long time. And I would help her by flushing cigarettes down the toilet and you know all kinds of different things. It was a hard battle. But you don't quit and abstain sexual immorality the way you do quit smoking. You don't just cut back a little bit. You don't just kind of ease off of it. The biblical mandate is to say, abstain from it. Stop doing it today. Don't just gradually kind of drift off of it. You know why? That does not work. Besides that, that almost begins to reveal your own heart's motive in it. I, I feel a little distant from God. I need to feel a little bit closer, not wholeheartedly, but I'm going to cut back a little bit. Those of you who are married, hope to be married, or were married, if your spouse cut back on their adultery a little bit, how would that feel? Is that what you dream for and long for? That's not how it works, is it? You cut it off. That's the command for us. He was trying to clarify so that new Christians could live differently. Christians being born again in this culture lived in a sexually loose culture that wouldn't have instructed them and told them. In fact, it would have encouraged them in exactly the opposite direction. Sound familiar? Those of you who were not raised with a godly Christian heritage, praise God that He gives us the power to overcome. And you don't have to repeat the sins of your father and their father and their father. God's given us instruction of how to come out from the most perverse lifestyle. We ended last week. And such were some of you. All these different dastardly things. Such were some of you. But you were purified. And you were made holy. He gives a second clarifier about what sanctified living is all about. And it's found in verse 4. And I would just summarize it this way. Control your body. It's kind of the positive expansion of be, of be sanctified. The negative statement is don't. Abstain. Stop. Stay away from. The positive statement is learn to control your body. In a way, it's really the same kind of command of being sanctified. And you find this all through Scripture. Put off the old self. Not just to kind of be left naked. Put on the new self, right? Get rid of and begin to pursue over here. Stop doing over here and go doing over here. If you spend your whole life, let me just ask you this. Some of you know this from experience. If you just spend your whole life stopping and then like going, okay, I've stopped, I've stopped. Where's your attention? Back. Back on the path of what you're stopping. There's a giant chocolate cake in my fridge, but I'm stopping. I'm resisting. Instead of pursuing, right? Instead of pursuing and going in God's direction. Instead of putting on this new self. Control your body says this, that Christians can and must learn self-control. One of the things I love about Scripture is the fact that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. There's a certain sense that you ought to be growing in this and you look around and realize that you're growing in it. 
not some program you can just immediately put on and start doing all the work or else who would get the glory? You. Look how self-controlled I am. Spiritual disciplines, in fact, are a tricky thing. I would say every one of you, every one of us should be engaged in the spiritual disciplines. But sometimes the spiritual disciplines, the very thing that we're, that we're wanting to do to walk in holiness and purity, we can do exactly the opposite. So if control your body is all about you and not a fruit of the Spirit, you're in trouble. If controlling your body is all about, all right, Lord, I just want you to produce the fruit of righteousness in me. Got my Bible under my pillow. Going to let it osmos every night. I mean, you know, if you, if you just take that route and leave it all on God, you're in trouble. Scriptures clearly mandate it's a partnership. Learn the habit of purity. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not going to get into details. You know which finger this kind of goes into for you. I know it does for me. There are habits of impurity in your life. And you need to say, God, that's a habit right now. That's a pattern in my life. I want, I want, to, I want to walk in the broken spell of sin that, I, that I'm promised in you. And so help me to form new habits that are holy and honorable. What this says to me too is this. You and I are not victims of our power. I mean, of, of passions and appetite. And that's sometimes the idea is this idea. We've all said it, at least in our mind. I can't help myself, right? We pulled that one with God. God, I can't help myself. And what this scripture is teaching us is actually um, there's, there's things that, that, that can change. You're not a victim here. You are freed from the power of sin. And so actually, you're the one that has a way out. Walk in it. Control your body. Avoid sexual immorality. The third one is this. Stop wronging others sexually. I'm going to skip down to verse 6. And in this matter, this whole area of sexuality and being sanctified, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Um, we've already really covered what we're talking about in the other demand. Let me throw this out to you. Many weeks ago, we threw out this demand that we are to love like Jesus. Right? Let me ask you a question. If you love other people like Jesus, are you wronging them sexually? Are you objectifying them? Are you using them? Are you going behind their back? Are you hiding it from them? Are you sneaking off to Vegas in your mind? No. When I love others like Jesus, I'm not wronging them, sexually or otherwise. Here's another one that we've done. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want to be used? Do you want to be taken advantage of? Do you want to be wronged in this matter? No! Then stop it for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's why it's the great command. Do you see how this works? It trickles down and all these other things kind of take care of themselves. Fortunately, the Bible zeroes in and kind of narrows our focus sometimes into matters of sexuality. Um, final thought on this. Sexual sin always involves other people. One of the things I constantly had youth ask me is this. If two people think they're ready and they're doing okay and they're not hurting anyone else, isn't that just okay? Aside from the fact that God sees all of our sin and that's not walking in honor, no, it's not okay. Because it always involves someone else. Every single time. It's never just about you alone. Paul goes on to give two reasons of why we should comply with this. So be sanctified what? Is it at least those three? And then he says, be sanctified why? Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, and um, the Lord will punish men for all such sins. We do this as bosses. We do this as parents. We do this as teachers. And that is this. We remind someone of the rule. We say, now remember, don't go over here. 
And we may not say or else, but in a way we're saying or else. Don't forget, if you choose not to do that, here's the consequence of it, right? So here's what's happening is, is Paul's appealing to this, this future judgment that's coming. He's talking to Christians. He says, you already, you already know this is from God. You're already walking in this. I just want you to grow more and more in it. So you already fear the judgment of God, the wrath that's coming on sin. Remember that as we talk about this whole area of being sanctified and walk in it. Judgment follows sin as surely as day follows night. I don't know who said that, but a pretty poignant reminder for us, right? Everything you're doing tonight is going to be exposed one day. They say that some men's sin goes out before them and you can see it coming and they're judged by it. Some men's sin follows behind them and you find out about it later. That is a sobering thought to me to know that it will come into the light. Is it demanding to be pure? Is it demanding to be sanctified? Yes. Let me just throw out a few things from the headlines. It's demanding to have a press conference telling the entire world because you're the most watched golfer in the world about a string of bad choices. That's demanding also. It's demanding to waste away from a sexually transmitted disease. That's demanding. It's demanding to lay in your bed night after night and have a gut-wrenching agony and tears that won't stop because of guilt and shame that's gone on in areas of sexual impropriety and not walking in God's ways. That's demanding too. So on the one hand, is it demanding? You say, absolutely it is. In fact, God, I need you every day in it. I need you every moment in this. But so is the alternative. Let's not be naive to that. The second why that he gives is, is just past calling. Look at verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. You know what this reminds me of? By the way, I'm talking, this passage is talking to saints. The only ones who can be sanctified are those who are saints. The only way you're a saint is if you're found to be in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not our righteousness that we're trying to attain here. So that God will somehow look at us and He'll see us holy. The only holiness we have is the covering of, of, of Jesus' blood, His sacrifice. Amen to that? So that's what we're talking about here. And with that covering, with that family status that, that, that now um, has been imparted to us, has been given to us, here's what I hear in this verse. You know what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Peng name. Walk in a, man, in a manner worthy of the, the Nemec name. This is how a Carlson lives their life. But my friends are allowed to say that. I don't care what your friends are allowed to say. They're not my kids. In our home, that's not how we talk to each other. That's not what we're about. And God gave us this calling and He said, I want you to imitate me because I'm holy. What's one of the core characters of God's character but holiness? And he wants us to walk in that which is holy. In verse 8, he basically kind of applies the logic to this. He says, therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not re reject man, but God who gives us the Holy Spirit. I see this all the time in my household. Um, I once in a while have a child come to me and say, so-and-so's doing such-and-such. And so I say, well, tell them to stop it. I did. What happened? They didn't. Parents, what do you, what do you add on to that at that point? Tell them that I said... Dad said to stop it. 
You know what little Junior's face happens at that time? They go just to go, they get huge eyes. They're like, you know why? It's like a bazooka. It's like they just were handed a bazooka. And they get to go back to older sibling who's not respecting the rules of the household. And they just say, look, mom said, dad said. And all of a sudden, most often, older sibling is wise enough to understand future judgment and they comply. You know what? He's just saying this. Look, if you're rejecting this, you're not rejecting me. Once in a while, Paul averts and other New Testament writers say, this isn't a command from the Lord, but I would just say, here's some practical wisdom. I tell people that sometimes too. I don't really have a command from the Lord that I can tell you this. Can't find chapter and verse, but here's practical wisdom on this, okay? But there are other things like this morning. This is God's command. You're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God on this one. Let me leave you with the key to obedience. Here it is. How do you, how do you be sanctified? Here's the one key. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. Not, so we're, we're, to, we're to control our body in a way that is holy and honorable. Catch this. Not in passionate lust like the heathen. Here it is. Who do not know God. A heathen is someone who simply doesn't know God. Some of your translations say a Gentile. It's not talking about a non-Jewish person descent. It's talking about someone who, who does not know God. Not does not know about God, but does not know God. So the, the key to this, the, the key to walking in this is knowing God. That's what unlocks the power to even be able to begin to walk in these ways. You say, how do I have power to overcome my lustful thoughts? How do I have power to start, to start feeling okay about the marriage bed again? Look at verse uh, 8. The very last part of our passage today says this. He rejects this instruction, does not reject man but God, who gives you His Holy Spirit. The way to receive the Holy Spirit is to know God. Not know about Him, but to know Him intimately. I saw this funny t-shirt that probably would offend a lot of Christians, but I got to think about it. I thought it was pretty funny, actually. T-shirt just simply says this. Knowing someone in the Bible is to have sex with them. <laughs> I kind of thought, that'd be an interesting shirt to wear around. Now, here's the kicker with that. That very concept is the way we're to know God. Who's the groom and who's the bride in, in, in Jesus' own terms about us? Jesus the groom. Us, his bride. He talks about this level of intimacy all the time. Adam knowing his wife, wink, wink, the kids didn't catch that one. He wants us to know him. He calls us his, his lover. He tells a church in Ephesus, return to your first love. Over and over in scripture is this level of... No so do you see how knowing and knowing can be two very different things? And you could say this, I can hear it already. I've already tried this. I know God, Dave, and it, not, nothing works. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Getting your passions uh, in line with what God would, 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 would have for you is about, is about possessing the Holy Spirit and walking in His ways. Let me invite the band up. <clears throat> um... I want to just read a passage and, and leave us with this thought. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's what I mentioned before, verse 11. And that is what some of you were. Everything I just read on that list has to do with our passions and our appetites. It's our five senses. God-given, blessed, and gifted. And such were some of you. Catch this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. We're going to sing a song in just a second called Yearn. And it's really a passionate prayer to say, God, I don't want to settle anymore. I want you to take my passions. I want you to to point them to you. As we sing this song, it might be more important to, to deal with some of the things that you might be struggling with. How do you get past the past? God knows. God understands. It's not hidden to Him. Provides this instruction in 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we, do not have, we, we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our life.